You're listening to an Empavillion podcast. Conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at empavillion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. Cool, cool, cool. Hello. Thanks, everyone, for joining us. Um, here we are on Wurundjeri and Boon land. I pay respect to Kulin elders and ancestors. It's a privilege to live and work on Kulin country. Uh, always was, always will be Aboriginal land. Uh, welcome, everyone, to M Pavilion, and thank you for joining us for the final talk in the Untold program presented this weekend by Agency Projects. Hopefully, you guys have caught some of the other talks they, throughout the weekend. They've been fantastic. Uh, so, Agency is a First Nations non-for-profit. Uh, we exist to celebrate and promote Indigenous art, culture, and people on a local, national, and international scale. Uh, and Untold is an ongoing series of talks presented by Agency. Um, we invite First Nations people uh, from diverse creative fields to come together and talk and listen and share um, about what they do. We call it intangible, cap intangible capital, knowledge, experience, histories, culture and ideas. Uh, so my name's Hannah Presley. I am Senior Curator of Museums and Collections at the University of Melbourne. Um, I'm very lucky to also be a Director of Agency. Um, and today we're here to talk about cloaks, um, possum skin cloaks. We have a few people on our panel today that I'm very excited to um, have a conversation with, including the amazing Dr Vicky Cousins. Uh, Vicky is a Gunditjmara woman from the Western Districts of Victoria. Her contributions in the reclamation, regeneration and revitalisation of cultural knowledge and practice extend from, I think you've written, arts and creative cultural expression spectrum. We will talk more about that. Uh, they include language, uh, ceremony, community arts, public art, visual and performing arts and writing. Uh, Vicky is a senior knowledge custodian of the Possum Skin Cloak story and language reclamation and revival of her Kire Wurong mother tongue. I'd also like to introduce the fabulous Taryn Love. Uh, Taryn is also proud Gunditjmara and Kire Wurong woman and artist and curator from Southwest Victoria. Taryn is and, and Vicky's niece, it's a family affair. Uh, we again, we'll talk more about that too. Uh, so, Taryn is inspired to celebrate her culture as a result of the impact of her grandfather and her family, including her auntie Vicky. Taryn's art reflects the passing down of knowledge and language, which she aims to revive and reinvigorate um, her culture while exploring her identity. And we're also really lucky to have Sophie Lewin-Camp here. <laughs> Sophie is a conservator. <laughs> Uh, a conservator, a project manager and long-time collaborator with Vicky. Uh, her work investigates the concepts and approaches for engagement and collaboration with communities associated with the origin, ownership and use of heritage items. 
She's passionate about community conservation work and has been involved in many community-driven projects, such as the Gundijmara uh, Cloak Project, Anchor Arts Worker Training Programs, War Heritage Roadshow, and Warangari Aboriginal Art Poles Project, which I don't know about, but I'm absolutely looking into. Very exciting. Um, so, cloaks. Hopefully, you guys have seen cloaks before. You know about the cloaks. You might know something about the cloaks. Um, but Vicky, when did you first see a cloak, a possum skin cloak? I think just talk into it. It's on. Yeah. <laughs> keep um, it close. Keep it yeah, close. Yeah, I can't quite recall. It was um, actually at the museum, <clears throat> and it was the Lake Condor possum skin cloak that I seen and I'd seen pictures and drawings but um, it was in 1999 that um, I'd been living in Gippsland and we came down as a group, <coughs> pardon me, to do printmaking with the Melbourne Museum um, and we were working with the Australian Print Workshop in Fitzroy if anyone knows that um, and so we went to the museum to be inspired by our cultural objects and there was about 13 or 14 artists from across the state so they knew who was coming and so they kind of curated particular objects out of the collections and showing us through the collections and showing us objects from our people's, um, our people's objects and um, material cultural items. And um, unbeknownst to me at that stage, we, they called us all over and uh, they opened this big box on the table and it was the late Condor Possum Skin Cloak out of the glass, not on display, and um, I had this very profound and spiritual, you know, connection to it, um, notwithstanding that, you know, you loved it anyway, but at this point, um, and then we were all standing around looking and you could feel the ancestors come into the room and everybody felt it, the staff and the, the other artists, and it was from there that a, a vision was given from those ancestors to bring cloaks back to community and it was following on talking to Lee Derrick and Trina Ham um, that we set about because Lee and Trina are yorta yorta we set about making re reproductions because the Melbourne Museum has the Lake Condor cloak and the yorta yorta historical cloaks and we went through a protocol process and stuff and I made um, made the cloak with our younger sister, my sister Lisa's here, Taryn's mum over there, my husband Rob <coughs> and nephew-in-law Finn um, and Kerry, she's sitting over there. Um, so we, we set about making copies of those cloaks as a step towards bringing cloaks back to living community. So you didn't, have, you didn't have a cloak when you were little? No. Nah. Like there was... It, it was in a museum that yeah. you first saw. Cloaks yeah. generally weren't a living cultural practice um, in our growing up and not even in Dad's really that um, I recall and he never said it was. And I know um, Uncle Bill Onus used to, um, he was very much the entrepreneur and in the 50s and 60s he would sell lots of different um, Aboriginal objects to the tourists because including cloaks. I don't know if there's any of them still out there. That would be interesting to find out. And there's been other artists like Kelly Kumalatsis who works in cloaks and skins in her practice and Gail Madigan. And um, I'm going to be mentioning um, people who've passed away. So 
for anybody who needs to know that. Um, so Uncle Wally Cooper, he made cloaks and a few other people and more recent times Tyrichionis has been getting into it. But from, from that time when we made those cloaks and we ended up exhibiting the cloaks and the other artworks that we made sur surrounding those cloaks, and it was thanks to Deborah, um, my, our younger sister, because I flunked sewing at high school <laughs> and I'm not really like that big on sewing anything except now that I sew cloaks and I love it, but I don't really sew anything. And buttons, buttons are about as good as it gets. <laughs> On the kids' school uniform. That's a unique skill. It's good yeah. to be able to do a button. And they don't fall off anymore. <laughs> um, so we, we did the exhibition and the National Museum come along and thought it was wonderful and an opportunity and so it all went to the National Museum after a lot of consideration and negotiating because we didn't really think about what were we going to do with this body of work that we'd made at the end of that sort of time. And so... Um, you know, we thought, well, it's in a national institution. A store, you know, it's available as a to share with the world, basically. So that was okay. And then we went. Um, I went home, and Lee and Trina went back to their respective homes. And I started making cloaks down home in Gunditjmara country with a couple of our communities, because I uh, smashed out a couple of really good <laughs> funding applications, <laughs> which helped that process. And then in 2005, there was a think tank um, for the t uh, M2006, the Commonwealth Games. Yeah. And I went to that and um, Bamboo Joy, Murphy Wandam was there and a whole heap of other people. And we were there having a think tank on what could the opening ceremony for the Commonwealth Games look like. Yeah. And, you know, I hadn't, we hadn't really progressed that vision of bringing the cloaks back in to live in community a little bit down home. And then Joy said, well, because I actually had a cloak there. Kimber Thompson from Black Dot, Black Dot Gallery had bought a cloak that had gone to Aotearoa, New Zealand on an exhibition. She'd bought it back. And so it was one of the first sort of close encounters some of the people there had had. And Wesley Enoch, the um, director of the opening ceremony, was trying it on. And, you know, he was in tears. And, and Joy actually said the words of, we, we should have the cloaks at the opening ceremony. So this created the opportunity. And I always credit the old people in their wisdom in making these things happen and manifesting these things. Um, you know, because the Commonwealth Games meant there was resourcing around. And so once that was decided upon, the uh, Aboriginal Advisory Committee and then, you know, whoever was higher up the chain agreed and the funding was resourced for us to work across the state. And it, so I worked with um, Regional Arts Victoria to facilitate the project. And that's where we brought um, Marie Clark. I'm sure everybody here knows Marie's work. And Carrie's here, her niece, um, who's a cloak maker in her own right. Um, Marie came on board with myself, Lee and Trina, to work with the communities from where we lived or where we come from. So I kind of worked in the west and Marie northwest and Treen northeast and and Lee in Gippsland. Worked with communities and local artists and, and uh, cloaks were made to wear at the opening ceremony and so it was like they're back. How many cloaks did you make on that for that project? Uh, 35 were made. Yeah, wow. And it was the first kind of time and we. Yeah. I was just telling someone, I forget who I was telling, but... Um, 
the other day, we were at the, outside the MCG waiting to go in and we said we have to have a smoking ceremony so we just lit a fire. No permits, no nothing. We just lit a fire and did this smoking of all the elders who, who wanted to do that and spoke in amongst ourselves before we got in and down under the MCG. And um, then from there... Um, Lee, myself and Marie, uh, Trina kind of went home and continued her practice and we, we went off, um, that was when from 2006 or 2007 or 8 or something we got funding to support travelling and the work and sharing the learning and we, went, we particularly targeted communities that had um, cloaks in other institutions, a lot of them overseas that were th those remains of cloaks that are left. But then anybody who asked us, we would go as best we could. And we, we continued for about eight years doing that in a funded way. And then everybody's been off. And it, it, so the whole thing, we went in New South Wales, Canberra and South Australia. And then um, Glenis Briggs and Carolyn, you know, what are wrong? The one that did that beautiful bush yeah. medicine one. Um. Mind blank, sorry. Apologies, Carolyn, <laughs> but um, they, they ended up working with some of the mob in southeast Queensland. And, you know, the whole possum cloak thing has really been seeded and flourishing. And we've gone from making community cloaks to working in families and nannies make cloaks for their grandchildren um, and mums make cloaks for their babies and community organisations. Um, run programs where young families can get skins to start making their family cloaks or their baby cloaks and it's just all out there now yes. and and it's it's been like I was just talking to Sophie then it's been less than a generation really yes and we're definitely going to talk about that especially having Taryn here can we just tell everybody a little bit about what the cloaks are and why they're important kind of jumped ahead all the excitement of what's happened with these cloaks. Um, but just quickly, like my understanding, I'm not from cloak country, but have spent most of my life in Melbourne and Victoria. Um, and I've always thought, you know, when a bub was born, they would have a pelt and that would, you know, have something identifying them as who they were and where they were in the world. And then as they grew, they would get more pelts added to that, that cloak. Um, and then as important things happened as they grew, you know, more pelts would be added. And then when they were old fellas, they'd have these magnificent cloaks that told the story of who they were. And, you know, is that kind of, am I on the right track? Is that a bit romantic? I don't know. I, I it sounds think, pretty fabulous. I think um, it is kind of a bit of a romantic notion. <laughs> and But what... what is happening now is that that is definitely happening. Yes, good. That people, are, people have taken the, you know, so we've, you know, it's adapt or die and we're the oldest surviving culture on the planet. So, you know, we use skins, these skins are from New Zealand because a crazy Dutchman in the 1847 took the possums from here to there and thought he'd get rich on the fur trade in Europe because possum furs are, fibres are hollow and the fur doesn't freeze and it keeps you warmer and drier than, you know, anything. So you can su survive ice ages <laughs> like we did. Very practical. But um, 
the yeah that practice is very much a, a contemporary adaptation like we make cloaks for high school graduations and we make community cloaks for naming day ceremonies so there's all these kind of you know if you think about the the labor intensive process of making a cloak even now and i know some people i've been talking to uh wanting to do it from scratch um get the possums skin the possums stretch the skins chew the sinew which is a boy's job we had that conversation thankfully because i'm not really up for chewing sinew no teeth anyway um sinew is amazing though tell everybody about the the sinew why why do you chew it to break the fibers down and to you know break them down to thin enough to sew with Mm. and to make them supple and keep them supple because it dries out and goes stiff but then you chew it but you've got to chew it sometimes when it's all still fresh and (laughs) um anyway (coughs) we we were having discussions around gender roles in making cloaks as well but um i was going somewhere with i don't know the value and of the labor intensive process of okay you got to climb a tree to get a possum um even now with a ladder that's a hard job um we had to make stone axes to cut the notches and make the rope to climb the tree. So before you're going to climb the tree, you've got to do all that. Then you've got to get the feisty little possums and knock them on the head. Sorry, but that's the truth. And then you've got to skin them. And if you think that some of the cloaks we've seen are 50 to 80 skins, that's a lot of possums. And um, there's optimal seasonal times um, to get them. <coughs> and uh, then you've got to get the kangaroo and the sinew and then you've got to stitch them all together and make the bone awls and everything. It's very time-consuming. So some of the research I've read, uh, Fred Carr describes how, um, pardon me, people coming to the gold fields were told you need a black tracker, one of our mob, to get there, and then you needed a possum cloak so they didn't freeze. And um, it cost two stone axes for one possum skin cloak. So you think about making a stone axe and the value in the economy, pre-European economy, um, it was very high and it was also a very valued gift when you were meeting other mob and at ceremony. So I don't think from all those reasons and there's nothing in the oral history I've been told or the records that you would have a skin or two for a baby because we carried them in our cloaks in the back and slept with your family in oh, them. It's so such a good story, though. <laughs> well, you know, some, some people think that, that that's what we did and, and perhaps we did because there's no saying we didn't that I've found, but going on the value and, and how, how you lived with your families, yeah, I don't they're think... They're amazing, like, practical, like, technology. Like, they're, to have access to a creature that, you know, doesn't freeze, to be able to do all of those different elements the tanning and the the skinning and all of that it's quite extraordinary um sophie as a conservator you've spent so much time with these cloaks what are the quirks what happens what how do you look after them in these spaces we've heard a lot today about the barks and um you know what happens with those what 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 are the unique kind of things that you have to think about with these with these materials um well i guess we come at it from two perspectives. Vicky was talking about the historic cloaks. So they're the ones we see in collections, conservators working 
institutions, they're seeing historic cloaks, but we see cloaks in communities. So there are two maybe ways that we would approach taking care of them, but we're always sitting with the people who know the cloaks the best and talking about what is most important about that cloak. The ones that live at the museum, they've been treated by some pretty horrendous stuff. Um, so natural specimens, um, birds, you know, taxidermy, you know, they thought it was really clever in the 60s and 70s to spray them with some pretty deadly things. Um, so whenever we approach a cloak or approach something of that era that's in really good condition, you think there might be some arsenic in here. So how do we protect the people who need to reconnect with those objects? Um, so we'll do some analysis. So it's all that care and horrible risk crap that you have to go through, but it's really important, particularly if that object is and should be repatriated to a keeping place. We need to know about what's going on there. So my kind of the check is if it looks really good in condition and it's old, there's a reason that that is like that. Um, anyway, we would never do that again. Um, uh, and there are ways that we can, you know, remove as much as possible. But if it needs to be worn, think about, you know, you're moving it around. You're agitating the fibres that might agitate this bad shit coming off them. So we need to protect people. Um, but my other side of that is, so if I'm looking with Vicky about her cloak or we're talking about new cloaks, what's the most important thing to that person who, the community around that cloak, um, I will never tell anyone what to do with their cloak. Um, the things I would probably, you know, would talk about was insects and bugs. They're the things that are going to get in there and eat it. You know, if you've ever had you know, a fur, shoes, you know, things where something's had a little graze, a silverfish. Um, we want to protect your cloak against those things. So knowing your cloak intimately, knowing your object as you would, you're wearing it, um, just keep an eye on it and keep keep the bugs out of it. Um, but I guess the other side of two is we want to wear them if that's what the most important thing is, is wear them in ceremony. If they get ochre on them, that's part of their amazing story. So I'm not going to be like, oi, clean that ochre off that cloak. <laughs> because I was but, thinking but about it. But some community might. So, yeah, yeah that's but then the they might thinking want to. that we have to. Yeah. So if, you, if that, that person didn't want the ochre on the cloak, then please clean the ochre off the cloak. But I was thinking about um, the old cloaks. When we go and look at them, we're looking for evidence of how they were worn and used. So to see a bit of ochre on a cloak, it's like, Oh, wow, we can, yeah. you know, so it's the looking back, looking forward, the timelessness of cloaks. I think just always keep that in your mind when, you know, you're thinking yeah. about how I might care for that and pass it on, pass it back. Yeah, um, and we'll come back yeah. to that um, idea of the kind of setting up those those rules around how the cloak is um, integrated into everyday life as well. Um, but Taryn, when did you learn how about the cloaks? When was the first time that you saw the cloaks as yeah. the another generation again? Yeah, I think growing up, like I was always really lucky to know who I was, who my mob was, be connected to family, you know, all through school, always knowing like, you know, proud Gunditjmara and that kind of connection. But I was thinking before coming here today, kind of when was that 
maybe first memory of a cloak. And I think one that really jumps out was, you know, Anivik was telling the story about the lead up to the Commonwealth Games. And when that was happening, I was six. And I remember being at home and mum flicking on the TV and going, sit down, sit down, like, look, Bopper is going to be on TV. And, and kind of like having that moment, seeing all the elders in their cloaks as part of like what I understood as a big ceremony for a lot of people. Um, it wasn't knowing then the, all the story and the lead up behind it, but it already just being there for me and me knowing like how important that was, not only for us communities, but like the visibility of the cloaks as well. Um, and yeah, just, just from there kind of growing up almost like relearning that story and going back into the work that Arnie Vic has done and what mum does now and kind of learning the significance and weight of that moment and, and it wasn't just like oh cloaks are there for me but what was the lead up to why they were there for me um, and I think that like when we were born we didn't have a baby cloak when we were born but my older sister had a baby early last year who who she Lily who just turned one like a week ago um, when she was born we had a baby cloak for her and just the fact that you know it was there for me as early as I could remember and it was there for her when she was born just goes to show like it really is back in community and things like that um, and as Anivik was mentioning before like all the different uses of them like as a living tradition in community you know when I graduated school, I took a photo in a cloak that I then learnt Aunty Vic actually made like a years earlier before I went to that school. Oh, yeah. yeah, but... Um, right. yeah, I was going to say, yeah. you, you weren't there when we made it. No, I wasn't. But when I stood there in, you know, in front of the admin building with my cloak on, um, there wasn't really that many Koori kids at the school or mob who was there, you know, come from different states. So, um, yeah, like that... I just felt so proud to be in the cloak and to have graduated and for that to be part of you know, that part of my life. And it also makes me think, like, I've been doing a project down in Geelong with some Wadarung mob, and she talks about her kids who are going to school at the moment, like, into prep and kinder, and how they're finding it a hard time to kind of go into, you know, that transition as little young ones. But her youngest daughter um, has been taking this skin that they have from home in her bag to school every day for the first week because it makes her feel you know more stronger and prouder and she knows who she is and like it gives her that confidence in school just like stories like that I feel like are becoming more and more common throughout community and the way people talk about and use them and really want to learn about bringing it back into their family is just yeah pretty incredible and as Arnie Vic says like it's less than a generation just to show like the change of how that's come back. Did you did you ever see that happening when you were first making cloaks like did you see the potential for what like they're extraordinary what they're doing for community down here it's oh absolutely yeah. that was that was the vision for them to be a living cultural and i i said to lee and um might have been lee and marie um one time i said you watch these cloaks will become evidence in native title claims and they are so there's there's those kind of things because people are uh, applying their stories and they're being held in this, you know, living document. Have you got designs on this one? Can we have a look? Yeah. Wow. This is, yeah. this is an old, old one of our grandmother's country over Lake Condaway down in the far west. Oh, yeah. Very slippery. 
Um, it's actually a little bit small for me. <laughs> but, um, yeah, it's a pretty significant one that I've made for myself and just to hold those stories. Um, it's actually got the... Um, Oh, the ocean here and the country over that way and the Bacara, the Glenelg River and women's and middens and medicine and foods and the black-tailed cockatoo, which is the moiety from our grandmother's side um, and because on um, dad's side is the white cockatoo and you can only marry the other, you know, black cockatoo mob and that's Nan's country. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I think I made that on a project... Oh, yeah, where Dad and uh, Rob come and rescued me. Um, it was a project called The Walk. And there was a whole heap of non-Indigenous artists when we were going on the Great Southwest Walk. <laughs> it was about 200 kilometres. And I thought, oh, three weeks. It was after the Commonwealth Games and everything. I thought, oh, that'll be beautiful. Relaxing on country, blah. I got lost. I was the only person who got lost. Or not really lost. I think I stepped into a slightly different dimension and ended up backtracking on a track and Bunjil was there and everything so I wasn't really lost but I felt like I'd lost, got lost. I'm like, oh, the only black fella then, I'm lost. You're on your own journey and, at that point. And um, they, they came and picked me up because I had to go back out for something and then I went back in and I was in and out for a bit but the day they came I, was, I had blisters from, from there to there, the, like the whole arch of my foot was a blister. <laughs> Because I wore blundstones the whole time because it's my shoe of choice. And um, so I cried and they rescued me and took me home for a few days. <laughs> yeah. So that was about the unseen, which I think is a really interesting, still relevant thing around notwithstanding that we've come a long way from 2007 when that was made, I think. Um, but unseen, the things that are unseen, the cry of the white cockatoo is significant, it's unseen, but it's our moiety and it's speaking to us and what is else is unseen and how our Aboriginal people and our knowledges when people are in the bush are unseen or they're invisible and the massacre sites and all of those things. So that, that was embodying those stories along with a bunch of prints and things I made. Can you tell us how language has played a role or like been a kind of dual journey, I guess, in some ways with the, plo uh, with the cloaks? Uh, language, I think, because um, I've had a bit of a conversation with um, Sophie prior to today. We got into a bit of a big convo. We think we might have to write a book about it. But <clears throat> the, we're talking about conservation and um, caring for things. And language is inherent and integral to who we are and our cultural knowledge and practice. And so cloaks in that way also have seeded and helped to seed um, other practices. So um, besides ceremonies or as well as ceremonies for um, uh, dance and song, there's weddings, births and funerals and, and um, all those kind of practices that they seed and people say, oh, well, what is the word for a possum cloak? straight away, you know, if you don't know, or what is the language around that, what is the language for ceremony, what songs do we have, what do we need to do? And um, so language is, and, and our language was our dad's, he started that language journey in the early 1990s for Gunditjmara and so we're continuing that 
in, in my practice and our practice um, as creative cultural expression practitioners. Um, but the whole thing around like conservation and caring for things, there's the, the physical care and how do you care for contemporary cloaks and how do you, um, but also the cultural care um, that we, I, um, and I've had conversations with Kerry about um, in those cultural protocols in community because what is the cloak used for will sometimes dictate how you care for it. If it's safe inside a glass cabinet, no moths, no bugs, but maybe it gets a little bit tired from hanging there um, just and gets stretchy or bulgy bits if it's over a mannequin, which is really ugly. Don't ever do that. I don't... It's not my preferred way of I did that in a show display. and it was actually gorgeous, Oh, Vicky. was it? Sorry. Um, sorry, I didn't see short that. Short term. Short yeah, short term, term show, but it, it, you know, term. shoulders could give it dints yeah. after yeah. a long period of time. So <laughs> there are those practical things, but how do people continue to care for their cloaks now and, and into like the future? And you and Sophie have been working on how to integrate that into like the contracts, the commissioning contracts and, you know, the, the paperwork around that. You guys can, yeah, <laughs> I'm sure it's lovely and warm. Um. <laughs> Rob's all right. <laughs> So, yeah, that, that idea that these things that you're talking about, Vicky, are actually a part of the process um, from, from the beginning. Um, what if, how did those discussions start? What are, where are you kind of up to with how that works in, in the museum? Um, I will, Soph might talk about the museum, but um, in practice, um, in the community workshops and in community workshops and even where now we're bringing our cultural practice into... A Western setting in a school or an institution like the Peter McCallum Centre or something, a hospital or even the museum. Um, and I've done one at the women's prison. And so um, I have a little draft contract of respect. And you can take that as a just a community document, put your own, make it look pretty with your own artwork or whatever. But it gets the conversation around what is the cloak for? How do you look after it? Who has authority and permission to give access to it and who who um, does the cultural care of it, who does smoking and re-stitching it if it gets, you know, a bit ripped or if someone spills coffee on it, who do you take to with a big stick um, and, and all those things. And, and you've, so you've talked about also like singing for it, you oh, know, all of those, all of those kind cultural, of cultural, yeah. Yeah, smoking, singing. Um, storing them with um, different, you know, plants or things that might be appropriate. And then, you know, the cleansing, because they, they gather, they hold energy, they bring their own healing energy, but they also can take it on. So you have to, if you've had it at a funeral or even a wedding, you need to, you know, do something about clearing it so it can be used again. And in terms of protecting our intellectual cultural property and our practices and our knowledges, things like, for example, the Peter McCallum Centre, I worked there with um, Annie Esther Kirby, bless, and um, Gina, my sister-in-law, Rob's uh, sister, and we made cloaks. Um, Annie Pam Pedersen, a survivor of breast cancer, wanted to make a cloak. And um, so we made a cloak and the women survivors and even people who were still undergoing treatment, we made this cloak 
and the CEO, the, their legal department went through it and we put all our conditions and they did it and the CEO signed it and so it's so nobody can go, oh, gee, we need to do fundraising, let's sell this cloak to fundraise or the CEO can't just take it out and go, oh, here's a photo opportunity in NADOC week. Like it's protected from any of those kind of misuses and um, hopefully the those, practice. Are you seeing those ideas translate into like just other Indigenous art forms and the way that museums are dealing with other artists? I mean, I feel like we don't often hear about that kind of thorough cultural like engagement. We kind of do with, you know, you call a mob with barks, things like that. Um, but are there any other examples that, where you're seeing that kind of being shared? I don't know, maybe that's... I feel like I'm hogging the thing, but there is a recent um, a recent thing we did with the Melbourne Museum, and Sophie might talk a bit more about the what we were just talking about in terms of the museum. But recently we did the um, Chiama exhibition, and so we um, got a condition in the contract to acknowledge the ancestral body of knowledge that our knowledge that we bought because m- m- myself and our daughter Yaren and family uh, con- contributed to the design, development and the content in, in Chama. And so we um, got the museum to agree in the contract that they had to recognise and give value to the ancestral body of knowledge that our knowledge is part of. So that wasn't just a licensing agreement to use some content that Yaren and I bought, which was significant in itself, but that, and so um, there is a recognition of that in the contract and which it's only been a gestural nominal thing at this stage, but it's, the seed is planted and they can't go back. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Anyway, I'm going to be quiet now. Yeah, no, no. And let That's someone amazing. else talk. Um, Taryn, how, how is this kind of being a part of, of all of this, um, how has that affected your own arts practice? Yeah, I think, I think, uh, yeah, just probably that I mentioned at the start, like, feel so privileged to be connected to such like a strong family, and and that growing up, I was always so interested, like, in the work that Annie Vick was doing. Like, you know, growing up, I was like, oh, she's just this incredible artist. Like, I want to be an artist when I grow up. But then, you know, it's <laughs> kind of, kind of probably that, like, um, if you see it, you can be it, kind of thing as well. But also now kind of coming into that space and, and having my own practice, then being able to have the discussions around like maybe artist also isn't the term that I like to use. Maybe it's more creative cultural expression because I recognise that like what I'm continuing in and the conversations are, that I'm having are a bit bigger than just creating art. It's, you know, part of a family. It's looking into the past, looking into the present and future. Um, Way of working. You were yeah. talking about... Um, some of the work you've been doing um, Geelong way um, and getting mob together, young mob together um, and some of the amazing outcomes from that. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that work? Too? Yeah, so I've um, been doing some work down at Platform Arts in Geelong um, who kind of was a place where I probably first started sharing my art publicly and, and maybe feeling like I could be an artist kind of thing and, and from there kind of recognising that out regionally there isn't really those spaces as much for mob um you know when you come into the city it seems to really be happening but out regional spaces 
um, there's just not the clear pathways. And and after having such a strong connection with Platform um, and just really amazing people there, I was just thinking, how else can I bring other mob into this space and and kind of other young mob in the area who are really interested in art and kind of their cultural practice, sharing it through art, um, how they could be supported to do what they want to do. Um, and really just to support the community that's already out there existing, doing amazing things. You know, it's not creating anything new, it's really just supporting the work that's al always um, been done and then just helping facilitate the space uh, and the time and the money so people can really uh, do that work properly. Beautiful. It's important stuff. You've got some pretty amazing family members around you that have paved the way for some of these thoughts, you know, these ideas. I have no idea what time we're playing with. Keep talking? <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> um, Sophie, I feel like I cut you off before talking about, you know, that, that kind of museum side of things and how important that is and how that's evolved. Do you want to tell us a little bit about or add to what Vicky shared about that? Uh, so, let me think of what I was trying to say. Um, so, the Lake Condor Cloak, eight or ten, I just had a mind blank of how many people, how many makers for that cloak. There was oh that was yeah something we found out yeah. later that that survived into some of the family oral histories where that, that our great great grandfather was one of the makers or him and his brother so it was like wow yeah. and they bought the red ochre that's on the cloak yeah and so the, I think there was six or seven men from f six or seven families so that was you know as a person in a museum or well, everybody needs to know that important detail that eight, six, you know, I can't seem to retain how many people, that's horrendous of me, but um, that we that we know that and that is in living memory. It should be documented um, to sit with the cloak if it's appropriate for everybody to know that um, and then to think about how we pay respect um, to those makers and we thought about that a lot when there was the changeover of the historic cloak. So it was a time for the Yorta Yorta one that was on display to go and have a little sleep, have a rest. It had been out for a long time. Um, and the concerns that we had, it had been displayed flat, but we were just weren't entirely sure how light fast the ochres were. We didn't want them to fade. Um, so it was time for it to have a rest and time for the Lake Condor Gunishmara cloak to be on display. Um, and so in thinking about those uh, makers, um, Vicky and I reached out to everybody else and Vicky connected with who, you know, we needed to connect with and community had a conversation and came back to the museum and said, we will make new cloaks to sit with this old cloak and we will make an adult's cloak and a child's cloak and the descendants of those people from the historic cloak will make, um, will make pelts and we will join them all together. Um, so family, young family members and slightly older family members participated in those new cloaks. Um, that was really exciting. We did buy pelts from New Zealand because um, that's that's what happens. And they do make very, they do have very nice possums over there. Um, and they're not protected. Got extra, I mean, yeah, there's we got a reason. The extra large ones. Yeah, the there's lush, a reason extra large you guys, New Zealand possums for those. <laughs> it's like um, a an order tick box, isn't it? We'll you'll take have that to have you'll have size. to come and have a feel because it really is the the most lush thing that you have ever felt. Um, 
I have to confess that I was having a bad day at the museum one day and um, <laughs> and next to me, um, I, basically I couldn't get to my desk because it was surrounded with boxes of cloak, uh, with pelts before we had taken them down to Haywood and I was just something, 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 uh, something, uh, uh, and I looked at the box and I thought, oh, and I just put my hand in the box <laughs> and I was just like... Everything's okay now. <laughs> it's true. Quotes make you feel better. And then I had to tell Vicky, I said, I did put my hand in the box. And she was like, okay. Okay. I don't know what to do with you, but that's okay. Um, they really, they're, they're the, the luscious things ever. Um, but so they went uh, to Haywood, the, the pelts, um, and the leftovers became, I think, some dance belts as well and some armbands so none of nothing was wasted um and then all three cloaks were smoked ready for that display which is quite an undertaking to turn off um a system at the museum so that you don't set off the fire um any of the fire systems and i think new museums you know will think about this more you hear about buildings being built and having special places that can turn off cultural spaces that aren't even for museum staff therefore um communities and i th i hope we will see more of this because as you as vicky was saying it's the connecting and doors opening within museums for people to sit with their cultural intellectual property they're right that these practices can continue and be owned by the people that they should be owned by um and so that that's everything um and then do they go back to keeping places and what do museums and us generally need to do to make that happen um but think about how continuing practice so when do they need to be smoked if an artist makes a cloak for an organization what agreement and are you are you open be open to that agreement because the knowledge that you get just being a tiny bit next to um, some people, you know, will blow blow your mind, um, and you will be forever um, enriched by it. Um, so I think we have a lot to learn more from from the cloaks than is already just there. Um, I don't know where I was going with that. Oh, After wonderful. I just confessed publicly, I put my hand in. My <laughs> This morning I was like, don't tell that story. <laughs> <laughs> no, thank you for sharing. They have they they have a presence and they feel beautiful. And I don't know, Vicky might even let you, you know, come up and, and feel that possum. Some of you have probably it's got it's fifty dollars to get your photo taken. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> fair, fair. Um yeah, but yes, petrol money. Possums yeah. used for all sorts of things. I mean, I've got possum gloves, you know, like the you know, white fella. You know, they're made Marino with... Merino wool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they're the best things ever. They are. Yeah, and beans Like, it's, it's a really extraordinary um, material. Um, yeah. We we had a... Oh, we had... I was lucky enough to go to a possum... We'll call it cloak-making camp um, and language camp. Oh, our language camp, yeah. Um, and I did try to do this sewing. This is epically hard to do. Um, and I watched... Um, <laughs> I watched really. Annie Esther do it and she said, she said to me, it's really easy, love, and she was doing it and she pushed the two pelts um, together and she could just flip the little bit of fur and then do the stitch, flip the fur, because you can see a little bit pops out, but not a lot. Like it, there's a lot here that could 
catch in the stitch. Anyway, she's going, it's easy. And then I did a little bit and she's like, mm, actually, <laughs> she was like, maybe not for you. <laughs> and I was like, I'll stick to doing the easier part, which is just conserving and watching. Whenever you need me, I'll be here later. Um, but it was like, um, it was really rhythmic too, watching her get into the motion of just fingers go together, clamping those two little bits of pelt flipping the fur, doing the stitch. It was, yeah, it was very beautiful. And something I think also that, you know, as a person who is often asked, maybe wrongly asked to think about conservation of these, that really helped me to understand in the making of them, um, which is what, you know, us as conservators always looking to do is we reach back to makers and community because... We might not know how that thing is made, so how can we know how to conserve it? So we have a lot of learning to do and a lot more talking so that we do the right thing or just get out of the way too. Yeah, yep. and I was just going to add to what Sophie was saying, maybe just in a bit of a different way, but talking about the process of making the cloaks, which I think is something that really impacts my practice and that kind of like framework and maybe like the lens that I look through and how I do my other work. Um, is I did a project at the end of last year with Yaren, one of Annie Vic's daughters and my cousin, and she was leading this community cloak making project and I was kind of there as her, you know, almost intern kind of helping and, and being the hands-on, kind of learning more in action, the process of, of creating cloaks. And just the way that, you know, went over several weeks, maybe even a couple of months that process went over where community came through and we kind of built this cloak together and sitting down and doing the stitching and talking together and even, you know, thinking about and creating the design. It's not just, you know, the final outcome you see here, but it's sitting down in the process and what you learn from that process. And, you know, putting the designs on, Yaren speaks about, you know, you can think of a design, but until you actually feel the cloak and look at the way that it moves, you know, every skin is different, every outside you know has a different bit of a shape so it's kind of responding to that cloak that you're specifically working on and and what your you know Arnie Vic talked about it before the intent and also like the energy you're giving into the cloak but the energy it's giving you back so I think you know the process is so much of like so it's such a big part of it not just like what you see at the end of the outcome. Yeah. And we talked a lot about that Vicky around weaving that similar thing it's it's a lot of times it's actually just everybody coming together and you know I, I remember working on the weaving collective with you and those ladies were like um busy hands loose lips <laughs> that idea that you talk about things if you're busy doing something you know you're talking about things without realizing that you need to talk about with with you know your people and yeah I, I can see that that's a very similar experience these those moments again it's the unseen that you're talking about that are that are important absolutely in the language camp um Saif was referring to and we also had a women's healing day in Warrnambool uh, a couple of weeks ago and oh yeah probably nearly a month ago now um we, we had weaving and our cloaks and we were just interchanging and yarning about those things Sometimes, you know, big D&M, sometimes just normal yarning or how, what's this word, Artie, or, you know, um, help, how do you do that, not again, or, and even, you know, those cultural stories. Um, and it's really important, that um, process. Yeah. 
as much as it is like in workshops, um, <clears throat> obviously you like people to contribute and actually your sewing way you sew is like your signature and I should be using this hand because I'm left. Um, it's like your signature. So for me when I'm in a community and there's all these different types of stitches and some are much more, can be a bit more immaculate looking and, you know, people's tension in Water how they tight. do it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it's it's also like what Yaren, uh, Taryn was talking about. Sorry. <laughs> We've got Yaren and Taryn and Jarrah and wah. And there was Aaron on the cloak that you were talking about. <laughs> it was very confusing. Um, oh. The, the different individual yeah. stitches. Yeah. Uh, and their signature and what that shows and the energy that's gone into that, you know, it's so important. So I don't go and fix a cloak after a workshop unless it's really, you know, some, someone's done a really, really loose stitch, then I might go back later but or get them to do it again but or on the day try to get them to improve that but not um, correct everything uh, too much. Yeah, but it, it is important to teach people to do things properly as well. Yeah. So I learnt that off my cousin Broman, who growls at me in working, <laughs> weaving workshops because I let people she get away with mistakes. She has hit my hand that yeah. many times. Yeah. I let She's people get away with a few mistakes, but she won't. Yeah, yeah. no, you've yeah. got to do it properly. Mm. Yeah, first go. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Rob, we've got you here kind of close to the panel. Have you played a role in these cloaks? Is there anything? I know you're a music man. Is there, have you ever made any instruments or anything with, with pelts or done anything musical with cloaks? I'm putting you on the spot here. <laughs> Hello, yeah. Um, yeah, we have. Um, thank you. Um, there was the, um, the opening of Amy Stadium a few years back and I think we got together with Andy Joy and Vic had this idea about... And Lenny, yes, bless his heart, I miss him so much. Um, about you know possum skin drums and things and and the <clears throat> the light machinations of of Amy Stadium where you're doing sound projections and propulsion so that would alternate with the lights that were going on all around the stadium and um, so that was part of that and it was an incredible experience to be able to. Have first Dan and and uh, my, I was I think um, really kind of enthused about the idea of where that could actually go in terms of contemporary music and um, there's now been a big renaissance of of music being put into the spectrum of um, traditional music and elements of that coming from a long way back and your family's always been a part of that. All the way through, from its you know long way, and um, so it was a great privilege for me to, to at that time. And I, yeah, it's just to be around the people that you're working with, and I, that, that was the best part. Yeah, and I think I've seen you with a like a drum type, or like some kind of a yeah, like a, a drumming pad. That sound is like magic. Um, yeah. Um, well, I've, do, I've done it with skins rolled up, or rugs, you know, cloaks rolled up and all stretched. And um, we went to the South Australian Museum 
trying to remember who was there. Uh, me and Amanda and Lee, I think. And they have um, skin pads that are just sewn little bits of skin with sometimes different things in them, sand or um, shells or things. And they just fit in between your hands and they're used for drumming. And they, they were old ones and they were incised. Um, so, yeah, we kind of seen that idea and then um, Marie again did um, a couple of she um, <laughs> I'll always remember because it was so funny uh, because she got the nair Pe the ladies who do <laughs> shaving know what nair is I, I don't particularly oh, but she got the nair and so practical took all the fur off and stretched them over some she had some ceramic beautiful like little mini djembes but also the poly pipe <laughs> And made some drums with the thing, you know. So there was, there was that kind of contemporary innovation which I think, um, you know, with some of the younger ones and, and other people like Gina, my sister-in-law, and, and Taryn and others are innovating in... So we kind of make cloaks that are sort of, for want of a better word, traditional or that but then people are conte uh, contemporising and innovating. I heard Gina was using glitter on Well, she uses gold leaf. No, gold leaf. Gold oh, leaf. yes. And she does a, a, a method similar to batik and she does lots of amazing things and uses really contemporary colours and I can't – I just can't seem to do that in my practice. But, um, this is very true to – you know, these are designs and, and stories you've been telling forever, though. Like, yeah. these, when I look at these, especially the uh, the cockatoo, the black cockatoo, I mean, one of my favourite, it was an etching, I think, of yours. Yeah, is the, from the same. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. So that makes sense. I mean, if I see gold leaf and glitter in your work, you know, maybe yeah. I would expect it in this. Yeah. I want to see that glitter cloak, though. Oh, time. Sorry, guys. I'm in my own little world here. Do I have time for any questions? Does anybody have anything that they'd like to... One of the things I, I thought, um, you know, this has been dragged around in stripy bags, which Terry and I are famous for. We carry all our stuff around in that, don't we? That's another tradition I've handed on. <laughs> yeah, again, uh, much, practical. Much to her father's thing. She's like, oh, here comes Vicky again. <laughs> Your daughter's just like your sister. You reckon? Um, is you know, um, they don't seem to catch the moths so much, but you do need to check them. But um, you can see from here some of the burning markings are coming off, so it's something for contemporary cloak makers to um, understand and know. And then there's the question of, do you want to burn it again, or do you want to leave it? You know, it's like. Maybe the, the people who were talking about the barks, do, do they repaint them or do they leave them or do you repaint your painting or something, you know? So there's all those kind of... Um, lots still to come as these... still evolve. Yeah. And um, I, am, I am going to write something with Sophie around the looking after the cloaks and, and how to display them as well because there isn't a... People still ring me and I'm sure Carrie and others get called and go, oh, we've got a cloak and we want to put it on exhibition. How should we do it? Um, there isn't a definitive way. And it I think with shoulders, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's my personal <laughs> preference. It's not that you can't. But how, how to do those things? Because I think a lot of curators and e exhibition people would like to know some of that. Yeah. 
and and what are some of the best ways and We're and obviously all that out. engaging yeah. with the the makers and the community um, in all those things. So, yeah. yeah. And I was just even thinking about like not so much talking about the upkeep in those maybe like more Practical. those spaces, but even just like in families. You know, I think about my niece Lily and her baby cloak that she has and something that me and Yaren talked about as part of the project last year was, you know, coming back to those cloaks like as living traditions and living culture, you know, you do got to maybe fix up a few stitches here and there or add something in and, and hopefully like that brings the opportunity for when Lily's old enough to like be part of that and, and that's kind of like... I guess maybe on a personal level, like how I want to care for that cloak and, and maybe in our family, and it's like thinking about what that means in, you know, what Arnie Vic is to me right now, like I am to my niece Lily and understanding that kind of um, change in my role and my position and, and just really wanting to then share that with her when she's old enough and keep her cloak, keep on growing with her. Thank you, Taryn. That's, wow, that's extraordinary. <laughs> what a, yeah, we'll leave it there. Thank you all so much for being so generous and, yeah, it's, it's extraordinary work and come and have a chat to these guys. Um, we'll skip questions. I have no idea how long we talked for, but I hope we you all enjoyed the discussion. Oh, yep. Vicky, go and ask Vicky. She's no, up for more me. of a chat. You can ask Lisa too. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and Harry. And sister. And, yes, we've got, we've got some cloak, cloak makers around. <laughs> Yeah, but thank you all for for being here and yeah, fifty bucks photo with yes. the thank with the cloak. So <laughs> thank you, thank you so much for listening, and Hannah for looking after us, and Sophie for getting me here, and Rob for coming with me, and supporting, and Terry and Lise. Um, and we can talk about cloaks in our sleep and underwater. So um, it's a pleasure. We always love sharing and yarning. So thank you. You're listening to an M Pavilion podcast. Conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts.